reeling from all the terrible news but not sure how to take action i'm kelly i'm lila and this is what can i do each week we interview activists about how they took action what got them started who helped them along the way and what they do differently next time in the process we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on twitter to making a difference so let's get started Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollack. This is What Can I Do? We're thrilled to be with you in our very first episode with guests. So I am here, of course, with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hello, Lila. Hi, Kelly. And hello to our very first guests on What Can I Do? Kristen Urquiza and Christine Keeves of Marked by COVID. Very excited to have you guys here. Thanks. Excited to be here. Hi, everyone. So why don't you quickly just tell us a little bit about your background and what you do at Marked by COVID? We are the co-founders of the group, which uh, we founded in the days following the passage of my dad, Mark, from COVID-19 in June of 2020. And our uh, mission is to ensure that we don't forget this pandemic, that um, we fight for pandemic justice, remembrance, and have accountability so that the next time a crisis of this magnitude hits our doorsteps, the um, impact is less, and it's also more evenly distributed um, and not just falling on the most marginalized and vulnerable within our communities, like we've seen here over and over again, not only in this tragedy, but in others. Um, and I'm Christine. I'm Kristen's partner in real life, as well as in this work. I have a background in public health, especially uh, health advocacy and communications. And so most of what I'll probably be talking about today um, falls along those sort of rails. And I should note, I demanded that Christine be here along with Kristen because (laughs) she is really like a part of the strategy team for Marked by COVID. And this is a podcast about strategy. So I think really our first question is when you realized that you wanted to actually take action, when you, you know, when you were sort of faced with this moment where your father had passed and you, you wanted to do something, what was your first move? What did you actually do? at the sort of, at the beginning of the marked by COVID uh, experience? I'll, I'll share what I remember. And then I think it'll be interesting to hear Christine's uh, perspective as well. My dad was a first generation Mexican-American man who got sick from COVID basically right after the state of Arizona lifted its um, mask and other mitigation measures And basically said, it's fine. If you're not sick, if you're not an old person, you're going to be great. Get back out there and jumpstart the economy. I just basically literally went on the radio and said that. (laughs) And I, we had been following, you know, what was happening just like everyone else and became horrified by this sort of pandemic free for all OG version and my dad got sick, he passed and I felt like there was a literal hurricane stuck in my body. I've never felt the type of just pure fury. I was afraid of like being stepping outside and and accidentally knocking down a building just from like the force of energy in my body. And so Christine and I basically leaned into um, what we knew 
to do from our training, which was organizing and advocacy. And it was pretty much without hesitation that we were both kind of looking at each other saying like, this is completely wrong. If we actually care about issues like health justice, racial justice, health equity, we have to like figure out how to share our story or else we could never ask anybody else to share theirs. My answer was going to take a totally different route. Um, my <laughs> my like gut reaction was we went camping. <laughs> so we, because this happened at the, I guess at this point, it was like the first height, height, height of, of a surge and Arizona was being particularly impacted and Phoenix within that and Kristen's neighborhood within that. There was a exceptionally long waiting period between the time when Kristen's dad died and the time that we were going to be able to hold the funeral. So we knew that we had a little extra like wiggle room to sort of like get our collective ish together, you know, while we had a zillion things to do. And, and so knowing we probably wanted to do something in addition to the funeral, but not really knowing what that was yet. We took an eye and we headed off. I don't even remember where. I think a friend like booked the place for us because we were so overwhelmed and busy. But we sort of headed out in the middle of nowhere and just connected a little bit and sort of started like a from the ground up brainstorm. Like, what did we want to do? And what were the groups or campaigns or actions that inspired us the most around that? And we just kept coming back to the AIDS Memorial quilts and ACT UP. Every time we started like going off on another tangent, you know, we would think of different tactics, but repeatedly those were the places that we ended up. And I think we've remained pretty true to that, like to this day. But thinking about those groups really helped us figure out like our our tone, like the the like aesthetic, the attitude that we wanted to bring to the campaign and and what was going to be important to us was like speaking up as, as real people, um, and, and doing that in a way that made sure people heard. And that's where all the like technical, you know, oh, we're campaign expert stuff came in. So you you just started to answer the question I was going to ask next, which was, you know, the being in a pandemic is a, a brand new thing. And so how did you figure out how you could actually respond? Um, but of course, that's not a, nothing is new under the sun. And that's really important that that sort of thinking about ACT UP and the, the AIDS quilt. So I guess then the follow up is, uh, how do you figure out sort of what things are achievable, sort of? You know, I, I'm sure there are all sorts of things you might want to accomplish. And as you're brainstorming, it's probably good to think through all of those things. But how did you start to identify the things that might actually be something that you could could get done? And, you know, depending on how big the group got, how, you know, I'm sure that list changes a little bit. Yeah, and it's it's sort of evolved a little bit over over time. So we didn't necessarily set out to launch an organization that would you know last years or decades later. We really were super focused on getting a data informed response to the pandemic. So we sort of identified this goal and wanted to leverage my personal story, which was based in in Arizona, and so put sort of identified our target 
as uh, the governor, Doug Ducey, and in that sort of identifying what are the things that would in, would constitute a data-informed response within the state of Arizona. And so getting tests to, to folks who are in need of testing, reinstating a mask mandate, you know, a whole set of sort of these common mitigation measures we now know. And, you know, we kind of not only in the sense of looking at ACT UP and the quilt sort of to take inspiration from, we also looked back onto our careers and areas in which we've been able to really make a big impact with little resources. Christine has a background in uh, media communication. So we knew we wanted to try and create a moment Uh, which we ended up doing around my dad's funeral to invite reporters to. I have a campaigning background in which I've, you know, met with uh, lots of public officials, but also folks in the private sector to push them to be better in environmental issues. And so, you know, we, we wrote a letter to the governor, uh, FedExed it. So it, it would be, you know, on his desk to invite him to the funeral But we also then started to think about like, how could we, what was the bat signal for what we were going to do? And that really sort of came to a series of conversations we had over that weekend about, you know, what would we call ourselves? What was this kind of, what was the brand going to be? And we thought about like ACT UP COVID and sort of like other ways in which we could go. And we settled on Marked by COVID um, because we, from the very beginning, even before my dad got sick, knew that this pandemic would change the course of history, that in some way we would be marked by COVID. But also Mark happened to be the name of my dad. And so it gave sort of a nice way to give him a nod while still being a big tent for everybody else besides uh, just my particular story. So I think we we kind of started at an advantage point in that we've you know campaigned on things before and sort of looked at the landscape of what was happening around us and what we've seen impact on before to kind of pick and choose a menu of actions for our launch that uh, gave people an opportunity to get involved. So we had social media handles, gave a way for reporters to engage and kind of focusing a tailored pitch on them, but then also had the powerful visual of both my dad's funeral and sort of inside access to that, plus a vigil that we held outside the state capitol afterwards. Something that wasn't within our control at all was that Arizona was the hot spot for COVID at that time. And so that helped to sort of bring attention. There was momentum towards attention that um, helped create sort of a perfect storm for us on top of the sort of specific um, strategies that we decided to elevate the story. Once you have people's attention you know, how did you think about how to engage those people? I think one of the most challenging things about starting an organization is once you get people who are interested in volunteering or interested in being involved, figuring out how to direct their energies in a productive way. How did you guys think about that? How have you, how have you been doing that since? We knew from the get-go, especially because we were so successful off the bat getting media attention that it was going to be 
really important that we were able to keep up a steady drumbeat so we didn't like totally fall off the radar really quickly. And so very soon after we got back, we started planning a, a national day of action where, you know, we worked with the activists we had met along the way, like since his and dad's funeral and had each of them in their own cities do something, anything. Some of them did really like quiet vigils. Some of them did harder hitting actions. It was sort of up to them to choose. And we just sort of collected all of that and then repackaged it and sent it out to media and their, you know, where, wherever they were at and just kept trying to find things that folks could help us with. And when that wasn't possible, just finding, figuring out what we had to say about the news of the day and making sure that the media knew what our opinions were, even if we weren't expecting them to run with a story that day, we wanted to make sure they were remembering us and that next time they had a COVID question, they would come to us. And we wanted to make sure, you know, community members and activists kept feeling engaged. And so Kristen started like a whole range of different programs for a really long time. We had this great um, sympathy card program where folks were making cards for others, you know, and then all the way up to the, the, the harder hurting like media interviews and stuff. Yeah. And on both like volunteer and activist engagement, like we've, we've learned a lot along the way, you know, we, we've been doing this work monumentally underfunded and it's been mostly through volunteer labor from ourselves. And then a small network of individuals that have like, you know, go gone above and, and beyond. And so working within those, those limitations, sort of a main strategy that we look for with our volunteers and even bereaved community are folks that are eager to take on like leadership responsibility. And I focus a lot of my time on developing, you know, sort of these like next, next generation of, of leaders to uh, understand how this, uh, you know, activism works and, and how to amplify your message and, and get more people engaged and really kind of building from that sort of foundation. The other thing too, that I think was really instrumental in the beginning, and it's not a sexy answer, but my golly, it works. Having one-on-one conversations with people who's message just touched me is really how we found some people that are still like within our universe to this day, both people who had lost loved ones, as well as folks who hadn't lost loved ones. And were like the way that we're handling this crisis right now is like a huge red flag as to how broken our public health system is. What can we do? And, you know, the, if you're it, for me, it was like, you know, those people just sort of by the messages that they sent over Facebook Messenger or through Twitter DM, I was like, I'm going to have like, I'm going to go against every single sort of thing that my mom taught me about talking to strangers (laughs) and like legit, like chat with these folks and starting to, I started to build a relationship that now has turned into like this incredible network of really committed activists who are bringing people into the fold, which makes the work more evenly distributed, but also sustainable in a way for building a COVID justice movement, which is what we're setting out really to do. 
I would also add that one of the things that works to our benefit is like, it's great if you can engage folks and of course you want to engage them again, but you need a way to follow up with them. And because we both had a background in, you know, both organizing, but also digital organizing, we very quickly were like one of our top priorities, and this is so nerdy, but one of our top priorities is figuring out what we're going to use for our campaign database and building it out ASAP. And so I'm pretty certain that by the time we had the National Day of Action in mid-August, we had all of that ready to go. And you know, we started with like a GoFundMe page, but we also made sure to have, you know, transition to a, a more real way to collect donations because all of those GoFundMe were amazing, but they don't give you the contact information for the folks donating. And, and so you have this incredibly valuable group of folks that you can't talk to ever again. And so we made sure to build that in from the really, really beginning I think some of the folks who are working with us, including folks who like do this work, were a little like, this is your priority right now. <laughs> but I think it really helped us. And then we were also like poised to take um, advantage of other opportunities that have really helped us build a foundation of activists because we had that like infrastructure ready to go. So I'm curious if there were any initiatives or anything that that you thought of that you thought like, whoa, this is going to make an impact. This is going to be big. And then it just sort of didn't go the way you thought it was going to go. Cause I'm sure that that happens. Oh my God. All of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not trying to give a non-answer, but I feel like it depends on how you're defining success. Like the day of action or other events, we've, you know, often set a goal of generating a certain amount of media coverage, for example, which is really hard to predict, you know, based on the temperature of the media, what else is going on, how successful, you know, each little event is. There's a lot of things you can do to maximize your chances of success, but you can't guarantee it. And there's certainly been things we put a lot of resources in that didn't get the media attention that we wanted. Whereas on the flip side, there's been totally random opportunities, not of our own creation that we were able to like jump onto and generate like a ton of visibility. And I want to be really clear that the visibility like isn't for us, like it besides helping sort of change the conversation. That's also how a lot of our activists find us. And so it's has been super important that we've been able to keep doing that. Yeah. I think actually with, with that sort of going off of that, I'm curious because I know like a lot of political work is ultimately theater and it's, you know, theater with an important goal, but it's, it's theatrical. How do you, when you're thinking about both, you know, sort of uh, your short-term and long-term goals, how do you balance between achievable actions that are meant to sort of like have visible successes and more long-term you know, impacts like, you know, like visibility, which is important because it supports your work going forward. It doesn't have any sort of specific endpoint that you're looking for. It's not like, well, we got a thousand people on the mailing list, so that's it. We've done it and we never need another one of those people. So how do you kind of like balance those two goals? I would say that this makes me think back to, there was a point where I had told my story so many times, like that it, stopped feeling like mine. It started feeling like something abstract. And that really shook me because I 
I didn't want it to become theater. And it really also helped me kind of reorient to like, what is really my role and fundamentally like important for me as both a spokesperson for the organization, but really sort of this bridge between new activists. And when I say new, I'm not saying like, oh, they're 14 years old. I mean, maybe there's some folks in the universe. I'm like, people all across the age race spectrum that have never been politically active before is kind of the bread and butter of folks within the Mark by COVID community, which is amazing, right? Because we're like, I feel like I have this totally. responsibility of like helping folks understand how social change works. And that's such an honor in addition to like helping to people process their pain into something that's, you know, for a greater good. And I think like for me, we keep every single Thursday, we have a community meeting. And in that community meeting, it's for the bereaved or folks living with long COVID, other people who are spiraling from the pandemic response. And we just keep it really real in that meeting about what we're going through, how it's, I, I, we call it this like gaslight free zone where... <laughs> We um, can just be real about like how disappointed we are in things. And I think that the theatrical piece of politics, I feel like there's a huge disconnect, or at least I always felt a huge disconnect between the real life experience of being an American or being a person living in this country and the like rah, rah, rah to the next campaign event. And it, I, we, I think that that, I understand we have to give people hope, but we can't give people false hope. And one of the things that I try to do is authentically show up in those spaces with my disappointment, with my rage, but then also this really annoying well of hope <laughs> that I have <laughs> to keep people uh, going day to day while we're you know, taking on these huge, huge issues. And then the following thing I think is so important is figuring out this go kind of going back to what Christine was saying earlier, like what is success? There's so many success measures that I think we gloss over because let's face it, like we're really hard at relating with people and one another. And like, I'm thinking about Marie right now, our like 68 year old activist who's a retired Air Force pilot who lost her husband to COVID. She's from North Carolina. She uh, doesn't have any children and she has never used Google or Zoom or like all of these things before. And Marie is now scheduling meetings with legislators and like confirming activists and like, sure, sometimes at like 7 p.m. I'm like texting with Marie on how to like, you know, do this one thing or do this other thing. But it's like, Marie, like that is success. Like Marie is so empowered. Marie is like firing on all cylinders and Marie's life has been totally ruined by this pandemic, but yet is finding uh, a way to push forward that is building, that is helping her, just helping her change the, the, the story of her life in a way that is like so inspiring to me. Yeah, like really connecting with people is important. And that's why I think small grassroots efforts that are led by people who actually have life experience and the issue that they're talking about 
is going to be the way in which we make social change happen. The type of enduring, long-lasting social change that I'm sorry, these like big groups that I used to work for as well, just don't fundamentally get it, nor is it really their profit model to get it. So that's what I'll have to say about that. <laughs> how how do you develop the resilience to continually have these conversations? That's something I've really struggled with in my own advocacy. Obviously, people come up to me all the time to tell me the story of where they were on 9-11 and what happened to them. And I oftentimes am like, oh, no, enough of, enough of the 9-11 stories. I don't need another one. How do you kind of keep yourself in the game, you know, engaged in those kinds of conversations? Because I know they can be really tough when you have to have them over and over. Totally. Uh, I, this is going to also not sound very exciting and, you know, out me as living in California, but boundaries, boundaries are really there for a reason. And I have like a, I have a, a scheduling link that it's like, I have decided that these are the hours through the course of my week in which activists can like schedule a chat with me and we'll talk about whatever, and that kind of helps drive people to like the, the times when I, I know I can show up and be there. And so thinking through just like what works for me so that I can be on and deliver is, is really, was really an important step. And then secondary to that, like, you know, I have a few people now who I really trust and see them as sort of like core like deputies in sort of leadership development and organizing work. And I just, I'm really real with them when I'm not having a good week for I'm managing, you know, both my grief and all the ex- existential crises that we're all living in and it's just not working out. Like I'll let them know and say, I, I need backup right now for the next couple of days. I have to be offline or else like, you know, I'm just not going to be able to show up the way that I want to show up, that our activists deserve to show up. And asking for help has been just like such a blessing. And again, something that I've learned over the course of the last couple of years of being thrust into this, this, this role that I'm I'm now assuming. So it it seems like you have a lot of experience then sort of training new activists. And so what sorts of advice, if there are people listening to the podcast who are like, I- I've never gone out and done this kind of work before, I'm kind of scared to, I don't know what to do. What are the kinds of advice that, that you have for them about sort of how to how to start? I feel like getting involved in, with a group that knows what they're doing and also is is trustworthy. So you know, a group that that is probably some kind of like led by a survivor or someone who actually understands the problem that they're trying to seek an organization that's not so, so, so huge that they are, you know, as much or more worried about their like organizational brand as they are about achieving their mission. Finding an organization whose like style and tone matches yours. Um, other, otherwise, it's just always going to feel like a weird match. I think those are all great recommendations, especially for trying to find a good match for an organizational like partner on the work that you're doing. And we tried to find an organizational partner because we I never wanted to start an organization. And I really, really <laughs> twice as hard never wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> so there wasn't anything. So that's kind of a part of partially why we're in this conversation now. So to folks who 
you know, want to take that step and start something and, you know, there isn't the right organizational fix and you're starting to talk to other people, I think that my tips would be just to be yourself and to connect with people, like truly connect with them. Like you have to show them your authenticity, your heart, like how you feel about a situation and meet people where they're at and give people meaningful things to do. So those things I think work really uh, hand in hand together. We're all like have so much different like wisdom within us. And because of the circumstances of where we grew up, the, the language we use, how we understand information, all of that might be like, that's, that might be a little bit of a disconnect, but you kind of have to like take the time to kind of get to know, like scrape that aside and really get to know the person and then be like, oh my gosh, you're actually incredible on TikTok. Like, let's have you do some TikTok videos and teach me how to do that. And so I'm always looking for people's superpower and don't let sort of the like, oh, you can't make a Zoom meeting. Like I just leave my ego at the door. And it's like real, like you gotta be humble and you've gotta be able to be a, I think if you have a certain curiosity and people like you're more, you're gonna be better positioned, I think, than someone who has a, is very, very rigid because you have to be flexible when working with folks uh, who are in, you know, suffering, <laughs> folks that are, you know, experiencing harm, who have been wronged, like, and recognizing there's a there's a lot of emotions that come with this. And those are very, very real. And I'm not a therapist. I like let people know that. I also direct people to resources that I know. So if you're working with people who have been recently harmed uh, from you know the system or the government, also recognizing your own limitations that and that there are other experts out there that need to be brought in. I would also add listening to what you said that it's sort of relying on this underlying assumption that the thing that someone wants to do is bring more people into the fold and activate them. And you just gave like a whole heap of amazing tips of how to do that. I think that's an incredibly important part of change making, right? Is movement building. There's also a lot of other people who you know, amazing academics who are really, really smart. They do their day job and then they go out and they manage to publish amazing op-eds on their own that also help change the conversation. And they're not necessarily organizing people or bringing others in. They're just, they're doing what they can when they can with what they have. And I think sort of like auditing what you have and then building, choosing your actions based on that is really the most important place to start, right? Like Kristen and I did it this way, because this is what we know how to do and we know how to do it really well. And so this is what we chose to do. That wouldn't necessarily be the right answer for someone with a, with a different background. And even within that, it was, it was a question of what do we have? Well, we need, we need some kind of like visual for, for media to pay attention to us. What do we have at our disposal? A funeral. All right. That's what we're going to do. How do we get pressed to a funeral? Let's make a really audacious invitation. Let's invite the governor. The governor didn't show. The media still was interested though. And so it's both like all the stuff that Kristen said, but also, and I guess this comes from the authenticity, right? Like not trying to do what you see others doing, though you should always be open to learning and expertise, but also using what you already have at your disposal and you're good at. 
That's such an important point. And it's also something that we talked about quite a bit in our first episode, because it feels like a really missing piece of the take action conversation. Yeah. Like, like I've always imagined a world where each of us who were really moved by the state of politics or our community found ways to be active within our micro universe. And I think, you know, we have a little bit too much activity on social media platforms. Like what does that look like elsewhere? And maybe that Mm -hmm. is very much based in having real conversations with your neighbors, with your community, with your coworkers, with your boss, these types of different folks to find people who see the world that you see it or see the injustices the way that you see it. And from there, starting to figure out, well, what can we do about it? And, you know, that's like a plug for start starting local, but that's exactly what we're saying. My story, like we were thinking about Arizona and how do we get more tests to the community that was waiting for 13 hours in line for tests. And we did it. We ended up doing a whole lot more too. And I don't know, it's, it's, I've learned so much the last couple of years. And I also think that there's so much change that can happen in sort of like these micro universes that we all exist in. And it's just like right in front of us. And that's why I'm excited about this podcast because, you know, I think the more that we unlock, you know, look behind the curtain, you'll see that like, oh wait, there are opportunities for me to change policy at my kid's school or in my community grocery store or at my work or, you know, do something even larger at the city or state level as well. And you might already have the skills to do it. You might. You might. You might you already be know. able to get yeah. started. <laughs> totally. So you did mention earlier that, of course, like most small organizations, you're underfunded. So I would like to give you the chance to uh, tell people how they can help that. Oh my gosh, you're so sweet. Donate on our website, <laughs> markbycovid.com backslash donate or just markbycovid.com. There's a big donate sign there that you can click on and give a secure donation. And we'd really appreciate it. If you have like other skills that can be helpful, we're always looking for digital organizers, graphic designers, people who can help activists schedule meetings on Zoom. Like from top to bottom, we're doing stuff all day and all night. And so if you've got some extra time and bandwidth to get involved, we would love to have you. And where can people find you on your social handles as well? Everything is at Marked by COVID. So we will, of course, put all of those things in the show notes too, so so people can find those. This was an incredible conversation. Is there anything else that the two of you wanted to make sure we talk about? I mean, I just want to thank you guys again for doing this. This is another great example of what are your interests and skills and what can I do to affect change? And I'm going to do it. And you're giving, you know, a platform to groups that need to get their word out. You're giving folks who want to get involved with stuff, tools they need to get involved. And this wouldn't, you know, starting a podcast to interview like cool change makers wouldn't necessarily be on a list of like ways to make change, but it's an incredible one. So thank you for doing it and for setting this example for how, you know, everyone can do something. Thank you guys for being our first guests. 
Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wesson and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at What Can I Do Pod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at whatcanidopodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. MSW